It makes sense to a lot of people if you tell them that hot and cold are different. They're different, obviously, to most people. They're the same in the sense that both of them describe temperatures. Both of them kind of tell us uh, uh, the, the relative, I guess you could say, temperature of something. But they're different, obviously, because they have different purposes. Hot, in some cases, can be helpful. In some cases, it can be damaging. Cold, obviously, can be helpful. In some cases, it can be corrupting. But both of them are obviously different to most people. They have benefits, they have weaknesses, and they're used for different purposes. Or we could say the same thing about colors. You might take, for example, yellow and blue. And we would recognize immediately that they're the same in the sense that they're colors on a spectrum. They go, both can be used, I guess, to symbolize things. They're used on flags. They're used in, in other symbols. But apart from that, they're obviously different. They look different. They, uh, they're used for different purposes. And if we were to try to stand and claim that all colors are absolutely equal, that there are no distinctions that should ever be made, we, of course, would soon create a world of either chaotic tones or very drab shades of gray. You'd lose all the beauty of distinctions, all the wonderful contrast that bring out such, such uh, recognition of beauty. What's that kind of environment, that sort of faded scene that some people want to create in the church? The faded scene of denying what are really obvious differences between men and women. The sort of painting of a drab scene of absolute equality where all the differences in the roles that God has ordained for men and women are all forgotten and increasingly we embrace what is known as an egalitarian, an absolutely equal approach to all duties, all roles, all functions, everything that takes place in the church. People will, of course, acknowledge biological differences, but to speak of differences in roles and design in relationships and, and all of that is downright objectionable to some people. It is backward. It is chauvinistic. And yet this is exactly the way the Scripture speaks of men and women. It's the undeniable way that Scripture speaks of men and women. The undeniable way that God from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture to the very end, presents the institutions which He Himself has ordained. If you're talking about the home, if you're talking about the church, the inescapable testimony of Scripture is that God has divinely designed differences which He intends to be demonstrated continually in our homes and in our churches. It's not some unnatural or distorted scene. It is actually the blended beauty of God's design that is intended really to bring out the distinctive strengths, the distinctive qualities, the distinctive charm, we might even say, the symmetry and the glory that God has instilled for all of us in the landscape of the church or the landscape of the home. Now it's with that message, or it is that message, I should say, that Paul is communicating to us in 1 Corinthians 11, a message of distinction in design, and yet equal value in the roles of both men and women 
in the church. And his message comes in the context of this question, you might say, a very particular question of whether or not men, or I should say, whether or not women should cover their heads in churches. It's admittedly one of the most difficult sections in all of Scripture to interpret. It is, I think, personally for me, the most difficult passage I've ever tried to wrestle with in my life, not only because it is has a number of sort of sensitive issues dealing with gender, but because it is beset by a number of other questions, questions about the definitions of some of the words here, the cultural setting, the historical situation that sort of dictated this letter to begin with. But the main point is clear, and it is our effort as we look at it to never lose sight of that main point. The main point is clear to us, even as we wrestle with the details. The point is that God intends there to be distinctions among genders in churches. Let me just begin by reading this entire section for us as we sort of frame it up in our minds. Uh, We'll start in verse 3, which we looked at briefly last week. Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of wife is her hus- a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if her wife will not cover her head, then, then she should cut her hair short, but since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man is not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All kinds of questions, I'm sure. If you wrote them all down, your pages of notes are full. Obviously, people ask the question, does this mean that women, when they come to church, should have something on their head? A number of churches certainly uh, teach that, and you'll go to some places, and they'll have even in the foyer these little paper doilies that you stick on your head if you go in, or people with full head dress. Or does it mean that that men cannot wear something on their head when they come to church? People have read this and concluded that men shouldn't wear hats in church. And they will spot somebody wearing a hat and they'll go after them and all of that because of what they read here. Or that women should wear hats. And there has been in some places long-standing traditions of women wearing hats, at least on Easter, right? Or is this even talking about the church? I mean, does Paul really speak here about church gatherings or is this about private homes? Was this something that Paul taught in all the churches? And how does this mesh with everything else Paul teaches about women in the church or about prophesying in the church? And what does it mean to prophesy? 
And what in the world does he mean when he says head? What is he talking about? And what are these coverings? Are they hair coverings? Are they head coverings? And what exactly is it? And does hair actually represent the covering or the covering the hair? Or are they two distinct things? And what exactly was going on when they wrote this or Paul wrote this to Corinth? What was the expectation of the Corinthians? Were they asking questions? Were they inviting this kind of instruction? And what about broader society? I mean, how did women conduct themselves outside of the Corinthian church? Is Paul teaching that God really cares about the length of your hair? Does God really like long hair on women and short hair on men? And what does it mean when he talks about angels? Why, what do the angels have to do with this? Paul says they have something. What does it mean to say that man is the image and glory of God and woman is the glory of man? That's just a few of the questions. You might already surmise, we're not going to get through this today. (laughs) All those questions in this passage, we'll try to work through most, if not all of them, as we move through. But at the same time, continually seeking to get the main point, as we've already said. Because while the details may be fuzzy from time to time, the main point is clear. Men and women have been created differently. And God has different designs, different purposes for them in the church. And to maintain those differences is not something detrimental to either men or women. As a matter of fact, the differences are the key to our glory and the key to glorifying God as the body of Christ. Now, Paul gives five fundamental reasons for maintaining order or this distinction in genders in the church, five fundamental reasons for these distinctions that God has designed. The first one we spent considerable time on last week, and that is the divine pattern. This is his main reason, you might say, in the entire passage. He says in verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. And so he establishes this pattern of authority and submission in various relationships, most significantly the relationships among the Godhead. He says there is, there is distinction even between God the Father and God the Son. There is a sort of pattern of authority and submission which is built into who God is. And far from being some sort of corruption and some sort of, some sort of extension of a fall, this is a part of the perfection of who God is. We might say it's a part of the beauty of who God is. The fact that there is authority and there is headship and at the same time there is submission. And yet within that relationship there is absolutely no diminishing of value or importance or glory. I mentioned this last week, a headship here obviously doesn't mean as some people suggest source or chronological priority. That is the way some people try to get around the implications of this passage. They would suggest that head, the word kephale, somehow just means fountain or source. And so when Paul talks about the man being the head of the woman, he just means that chronologically God created them first. But that obviously couldn't be true for God the Father and God the Son. We know, we, we know that neither of them were create, are created beings. They both have eternally existed. One is not dependent on the other. They both are God in his, his fullness. And so both of them stand completely independent of anything outside of themselves. 
And so Paul establishes this idea of authority and submission, first of all, in who God is. And he parallels our roles between men and women so that the distinction between us is a reflection of this distinction with God. That is simply to say that God has designed it so that you and I reflect his glory when we follow this pattern. That we show something of his beauty when this is lived out according to God's design. Now, after beginning with that most fundamental reason for maintaining these distinctions, Paul introduces to us a second implication directly from that of this distinction, and that is the disgrace of defying this design, the disgrace of defying these Roles. He very abruptly says and spells out for them in verse 4 Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, uh, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now, most likely, the reason this is so abrupt, there is no introductory particle or anything like that. The reason it's so abrupt is because there was some very clear understanding between Paul and the Corinthians, some sort of backstory that unfortunately has been lost to us in history. We don't really know if this was a response to a question or maybe some report that had been brought to him or whatever it might be, but it seems pretty clear that something was understood between them and Paul could just launch into this discussion. And it seems pretty clear at the very least that women in the Corinthian church were trying to stand up and pray and prophesy in the church. And when they did this, they would uncover their heads as the men apparently also were doing. And so Paul's simple observation is that by covering their head, a man would disgrace or dishonor his head. Probably Paul speaking hypothetically here. And by uncovering her head, a woman disgraces or dishonors her head. Now, there's obviously a number of interpretive questions that we have to ask right away. I mean, an immediate question that ought to jump into your mind is, what does Paul mean by head? How, How can your head be disgraced? By covering or uncovering it. And the reason this is so challenging is because in the very preceding verse, in verse 3, Paul used the word head to mean something other than your anatomical head, your physical head. He was using it, in other words, not to speak about physical heads, but in a, we might say, a spiritual way or even a symbolic way. The head of every man is Christ. That is to say, he's our spiritual head. The head of Christ is God. He is sort of a symbolic head in the relationship. And then in the very next verse, Paul immediately starts talking about disgracing your head. So, is he still speaking symbolically? Is he speaking anatomically? As he switched back and forth, it seems pretty clear as you move through the rest of these verses that Paul begins to speak primarily about our physical heads. But he's already established this very clear symbolic usage in verse 3. 
More importantly, the primary contrast that is set up between dishonor and disgrace, the primary contrast that he sets up gives us some indication of maybe what he's talking about here. And this is, by the way, you can just sort of put it in a footnote somewhere. This is a very important interpretive principle. As you open up your Bibles and read them and you come across a word and you're struggling to know what it means, one of the first things you ought to do is look in the context to see, is it contrasted with anything? Is there, is there some sort of uh, 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 antithesis to it? And when you look here, the primary contrast is being set up between dishonor and disgrace in verses 4 and 5 is the honor or the glory that is intended by God. And where do you find that? You just go down to verse 7. He says, man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. In other words, what Paul's trying to get them to avoid is on one hand not disgracing, but on the other hand glorifying. That is not disgracing their head, their symbolic head, their spiritual head, their husbands, their or even we might even say in a more general way, the men, the role that men has, have been given by God. And Paul says, don't disgrace them. Rather than that, you should bring glory and honor. This is seemingly the, the context of verse 4 and 5. And this is probably what Paul has in mind. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. That is to say, he dishonors God. And... Then every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. That is to say she dishonors her husband or she dishonors the role that God has given to men. That is, that's what he's getting at. That's what this dishonor is really all about. And that really brings another major issue, another major interpretive question as we just wade into these verses And the issue is really, why are women praying and prophesying? Why are they praying and prophesying and where are they doing it? Because very clearly, if you have your Bibles, look with me over to chapter 14. Because Paul will actually return to the issue of prophecy in chapter 14 in a very big way. And in verse 33, he says... Really, the second half of that verse is the introductory comment. As in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Interesting for a couple of different reasons. First of all, Paul is addressing the issue, obviously, of prophecy. Secondly, he is framing it in the context of shame. Thirdly, he establishes the principle by appealing to the Old Testament. All of those things have direct parallels to chapter 11. And not only that, but in other places of Scripture, Paul will explicitly reiterate the principle of chapter 14 that women are not designed by God to be speaking publicly in the church. 
He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That is to say, when Paul speaks about the silence of women, he doesn't permit a woman to teach or take up the role of a teacher. What he means is that this is the expression of her submissiveness. He doesn't permit her either to teach or to exercise authority over men in the life of the church. Doesn't mean that women can't sing. Doesn't mean that they can't offer testimony. It doesn't mean they can't participate in worship. Or certainly doesn't mean that there is some prohibition against casual conversation. What Paul's talking about is speaking in an authoritative role. Teaching. Or exercising authority. Those are the things that Paul contrasts with quietness. So to be quiet is not to teach. To be quiet is not to have authority. This is what we should understand even as we read 1 Corinthians 14. When Paul speaks about silence in the churches. A woman is not to rebel against the role of submissiveness. Which God has designed for her in the life of the church. And so as a response to that. She doesn't take these positions. When it comes to the meeting together, women don't preach. When it comes to the meeting together of the church, whether it's in this facility, whether it's outside of this facility, wherever the body of Christ gathers together, women yield themselves to the design of God and they do not teach men. They do not take roles of authority. They don't make They don't take decisive roles, you might say, in the direction of ministry or the ruling of the church. So back in 1 Corinthians 11, is Paul now suggesting that all of those prohibitions are sort of done away with as long as a woman puts a hat on? And the bigger the hat, the more authority she gets, right? No, that's not the way it works. What's he suggesting here? As you can imagine, this has generated no small amount of discussion among commentators. And it's not easy to answer because there is seemingly no specific prohibition in 1 Corinthians 11 at all against prophesying. It's possible that what is perhaps behind all this is a difference of setting. 1 Corinthians 14 is very clearly a public setting, and 1 Corinthians 11 is a private setting. That would certainly resolve the conflict, because Paul would seemingly allow you to sort of make, uh, uh, take up some sort of role in prophesying and praying and in a way uh, before men in one setting that you couldn't in another. But I think that problem has a number of different approaches. First of all, it assumes that the, the whole concept of authority and submission has different kinds of manifestations, or we might say manifested to a different level in a public setting where it's not in a private. And I think that would be inconsistent with the whole idea of authority and submission emanating from who God is. It is consistent, in other words, not because of the context, but because of the concept in who God is. Not only that, but the context of this whole discussion, 1 Corinthians 11, 
introduces several chapters where Paul is talking about the public conduct of the church. Here he talks about men and women in the church. In a few verses, down in verse 17, 19 and following, Paul will talk about the Lord's table when we come together as a church. In chapter 12, he begins to talk about spiritual gifts and and prophesying and speaking in tongues and all those things which are very clearly related to the public gatherings of the church. Even more than that, down in verse 16, he specifically mentions he's addressing an issue related to the entire church, not to the home. Not only that, we would even say that the whole issue of honor and disgrace almost demands public expression. In other words, why would... What's the point in, in, in regulating a woman's private prayer life? Why would she need to cover her head? And in what way would uncovering her head and the privacy of her home bring dishonor on anyone? No one else can see it. Moreover, the whole issue of prophecy is never intended to be something carried out in private. We'll get over to chapter 14. We'll see this, that Paul's very explicit. Spiritual gifts are not for private use. There is no concept of a spiritual gift that is a closet gift. They all are intended to be manifested and used publicly for the edification of the entire church. And so to even suggest that this is private begs the question, why in the, woman, why in the world would a woman be prophesying in private? So the whole context just seems to speak against the idea that this is a contrast in chapter 11 with private manifestations and in chapter 14 with public. So, why the distinction? Why the contrast? Well, another possibility is that Paul understands the uncovering of the head and public speaking to be one and the same. In other words, they would be almost indistinguishable in the context of Corinthian culture. At least in the minds of the Corinthians, they were one and the same. And so to forbid the one was to forbid the other. So by speaking to women about removing their head coverings, they would have understood by implication that he was forbidding them from speaking publicly. Or another way to say this is that this entire discussion is symbolic. Paul is using heads and he's using anatomical heads, he's using physical heads, but all the way through he's making spiritual statements. He's telling them that not only to have uh, have they removed the physical covering in a in order to pray and prophesy publicly, but they have removed their spiritual head in doing that. So that the the, the wardrobe change, we might say, is the picture that Paul is using to teach a spiritual principle of what's going on in their life. Paul's not simply arguing, in other words, for a certain dress code. He's arguing from a dress code for a distinction in the roles of men and women. The shame from the way that they dress their heads or the way they refuse to dress their heads becomes a sort of picture of the shame from their attempt to appear like men. Not just in their dress, but even in their roles. Even in what they're trying to do in the church. 
the roles they're trying to assume. So Paul would expect them to just conclude this naturally from the discussion of head coverings. If that's Paul's argument, it's safe to say it's very subtle. It's certainly not evident on the surface, or at least to us in our cultural context. And it would have to wait for, verse, uh, for chapter 14 for Paul to eventually spell out exactly what he thinks about women prophesying in the church. But you know, that wouldn't be the first time that Paul approached a sensitive subject that way. Because if you remember back in chapter 8, Paul brings up the issue of food offered to idols and his eventual or his uh, uh, recommendation to them in chapter 8 is that they shouldn't participate in the eating of food offered to idols because there are weak Christians around who their consciences would be burdened and, and defiled by that kind of interaction with pagan idolatry. And so Paul says simply, because of these other Christians and your sensitivity to them, you shouldn't participate. But you keep reading through chapter 8 and through chapter 9, you come eventually to chapter 10, and Paul returns to address the very same issue. This time, with more explicit condemnation, telling them that for them to participate in these pagan festivals and the eating of these meats is actually to participate with demons. He says, you're eating and fellowshipping with demons. And so we ask the question, why didn't he say that in chapter 8? Why does he give us three chapters before he finally comes around and, and, and really tells us what he thinks about these, these? We don't know. But it's certainly... Interesting to note that Paul approaches these sensitive subjects in sort of uh, progressive ways, we might say. But maybe he's doing that here. Maybe he's introducing the topic and he'll come back later to spell it out very specifically. But, but we can't avoid the, the solid principle of biblical interpretation that less clear passages are informed by more clear passages. This has been the the foundation, the bedrock of biblical interpretation since the, the Reformation era, and really even going beyond that, it has always been the guiding principle, the, the analogy of Scripture, the fact that Scripture does not contradict itself, or the positive way of stating that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. The, the fact that Scripture doesn't contradict itself allows us to compare it with itself when we approach an unclear passage like this. And so we go to those more clear passages, not just Paul's, but other passages where the Scripture speaks to the issue of the roles of men and women. Whatever the, whatever the motivation is, whatever the ultimate design, even of Paul is in his instruction. What is very clear is that Paul is concerned that women not act like men in the church. That's the point. He's warning them about the reality that by doing that, they are dishonoring not only those that God has ordained over them, they're dishonoring God. That does raise, I still, or I should say, still leaves a significant question of 
Should you have brought your head covering today? Is Paul simply describing something that is culturally limited to the Corinthian church? Or is he actually laying down a principle that should govern all of us? In other words, is it wrong for men to cover their heads? Is it wrong for them to wear a hat? Is it necessary for women to cover theirs? Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is where sometimes you have to look beyond even this particular passage to kind of get some clues. And if we do that, we take into consideration other contexts, and thankfully we have them, that actually address the issue of women in the church. But not only that, it addresses the issue of their heads. Look with me for a second over First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 2. We referenced it just a moment ago. Timothy is, of course, written to Timothy himself, who was a pastor at the church in Ephesus. And, and in this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul addresses the issue of women and their roles in the church. This is where we just quoted where Paul says he doesn't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. But before he does that, he actually addresses the issue of their wardrobe. And this is what he says. He says, I desire, verse 8 of chapter 2, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, and the word likewise probably indicates that at the same time or in the same setting or in the same context, also, he says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls of costly nature. And what he's really referring to here is, is the tradition or the, uh, the historical framework would tell us that the women would actually weave into their hair very elaborate pearls and strands of gold. They would go, I guess you'd say, to the hairdresser and they would put their hair up in all of these kinds of braids. And around the braids would be wrapped these, these golden coils and interwoven with costly pearls or costly other uh, gems and stones or whatever it might be. And what Paul's telling them is that that isn't respectable. That's not a respectable way to come to church because he is assuming what should be obvious to all of us is that to dress in that kind of elaborate way is to dress for one sole purpose. The purpose of drawing attention to yourself. This is what he means by modesty. Paul wants you to dress modestly. That is to say you dress in a way to conceal, not in a way to reveal. You dress in a way so that your clothing actually uh, you might say, communicates your humility, not wanting to be the center of attention. But the interesting thing to us as we read that is this single observation. Their hair was visible, right? I mean, isn't that a safe assumption as we read this in Paul's instruction in the church? That whatever you might say about their dress, the one thing is clear, their hair was visible. And so, 
Rather than Paul saying, look, if you're going to do all that to your hair, put a cover over it. He doesn't say that. He says, don't do it because he just assumes they wouldn't be wearing head coverings. Similar thing, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Peter. First Peter, after the book of Hebrews, gives similar instruction. When he says, in 1 Peter 3, wives are to be subject to their own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adornment be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let the adornment be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Again, we don't have the explicit context here, but at the very least we can say in common conduct within society, these women apparently were displaying their hair. And Paul, recognizing that they wouldn't be wearing head coverings, simply tells them not to put all of their effort into adorning their outside, their exterior, their external self. Now, just a couple, just a little geographical note. When Peter writes this, he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 that he's writing to a series of churches in Pontus and Cappadocia and Bithynia, all of those that are spread across what we would call modern-day Turkey. Similarly, when Paul wrote to Timothy in, in uh, uh, 1 Timothy, he was in the church of Ephesus, which was also in the vicinity of what we would call modern-day Turkey. So we have here sort of a biblical footnote that at the very least, the churches in Asia and the women in Asia didn't seem to cover their head, and Paul didn't seem to have a problem with that. Not only that, but if you were to do some historical study, it wouldn't be hard to just pull up images of frescoes and paintings and even sculptures from ancient Greek and Roman societies and to recognize that virtually none of them picture women covering their heads. In fact, Tertullian tells us that, that Jewish women in, in North Africa were very obvious because they were the only ones who covered their heads. So, so we have testimony from church fathers. We have evidence from, from broader archaeological uh, discoveries. We have evidence from other passages of Scripture that head coverings, the wearing of head coverings, apparently was not a widespread practice in any of the churches or in any of the areas of the Mediterranean Empire, the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean Sea. And so I think uh, people have been justified to conclude that what Paul has to say to the Corinthians here has something to do specifically with their cultural setting. That there were cultural expectations. There were cultural clues regarding the dress of men and women that Paul's trying to extrapolate from those to speak to the broader issue of the roles of men and women. And he's driving home the point that God has designed you a certain way, and you need to embrace that. You need to welcome that. You need to acknowledge and you need to recognize that God has done it for your glory and for His own. And for you to disregard that, to defy that, it will 
bring disgrace and dishonor on God. It'll bring disgrace and dishonor on your husband. And on the role that God has designed for men in the church. It'll bring disgrace and dishonor on you. Because you, you're rebelling, really, against what God has ordained for your good interest. Women have been gifted, everyone would recognize, in very special and unique ways. Paul will eventually celebrate it even in this chapter. You can go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he celebrates how God has redeemed women for glory, even in the roles he's given them as mothers. Unfortunately, the church does a poor job of communicating that. The church does a poor job of celebrating that. The church does a poor job of affirming the fact that women are indispensable, even in the church, for the roles that God has designed for them. That no church could be a church without them. What really is necessary is for us to embrace these distinctions that God has ordained. To embrace them not only as the pathway for glorifying Him, but to embrace them as a pathway for our own highest blessing. Well, we will return next week and try to finish up a few more points looking at this and everything else Paul has to say. But stand with me now and we'll be closed in a word of prayer. Father, we are... We're thankful for the chance to reflect this morning on your word. Thankful that you have given to us not only this passage, but so many others, which clearly outline your desires within the church, your desires for us as men and women. And Lord, we acknowledge that there is an assault by the evil one against what you have designed, but against us as well. Selling deception and lies and forcing people to embrace a drab gray of no distinction in the church. Lord, we don't want that. We want your beauty. We want the balance and the glory and the honor that come with the roles that you've given to us. So help us, Lord, to understand them. Help us to embrace them. Help us to yield to them. Help us to reflect you. To a watching world. Pray in Christ's name.